0: Brad Marshall is the author of the blog Fire in a Bottle, the author of the SCD1 theory of obesity, and the creator of the croissant diet. Mildly obsessed with food and its history, his work focuses on trying to place current ideas about diet, including keto and carnivore diets, into the framework of traditional dietary patterns. For instance, the French diet before 1970 combined flour, sugar, butter, and wine, and the population was lean. Brad wrote the ROS theory of obesity, which posits that the reactive oxygen species generation in the mitochondria of fat cells could provide the mechanism that explains why a traditional Chinese peasant diet, low fat with 85% calories from starch, a French diet combining butter, wine, flour, and a modern keto diet could all be expected to produce leanness, but combining flour with polyunsaturated fats is a recipe for obesity. The core idea comes from the protons thread of the blog called hyperlipid brad tested this hypothesis with his current dietary experiment the croissant diet the scd1 theory of obesity is the second part of the theory it deals with the composition of stored body fat which gets blended with dietary fat before being burned in the mitochondria brad is also the founder of fryer brand meats which is dedicated to producing pork and poultry products that are low in linoleic acid the N6 polyunsaturated fat, PUFA, whose intake has seen a dramatic increase worldwide in the last century. Animals cannot make PUFA and so we can create pork and chicken that are nearly free of them. You are what your animals eat. Brad has 15 years of experience raising pastured hogs, cutting pork in the butcher shop, and seeing the difference that pig feeds and pig genetics make on the ultimate fat quality. Thanks everyone for joining us today. I have Brad Marshall, who is, as you heard in his bio, is a a very much a Renaissance man. So welcome, Brad. How are you doing? Thank
1: you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So um, you have been kind of making the rounds lately because you have this uh, diet that you sort of created that is somewhat controversial, but I love the name of it because I've always been a big fan of French food, and that is the croissant diet. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to start experimenting with this stuff, and how you got interested in the croissant diet part.
1: (laughs) Sure. And so um, my well my background dietarily is i've been keto a lot of my life um but i also went to the french culinary institute back in the late 90s i guess in 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 new york city um and so um you know as i've been a keto adult uh and knowing that that works and seeing that it helps people I've had this struggle knowing that at the same time, you know, they're like the traditional French diet where they're combining starch with butter seems to be keeping people thin as well. And I'm kind of a food historian and I love like looking at um, uh, the dietary history of like people in New York state who were mostly dairy farmers back in the day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking at people in New York city, even into the fifties and sixties, you know, when you look at those old photos, you can see that everybody is almost everyone is universally slim. Like, and not even that they're not fat, but they're like really skinny. And you know, you can look at menus of the day and food trends and and uh, USDA data, and everyone was combining you know starch and butter and meat and potatoes, and and they stayed lean. And then something changed, and people started to get fat. And so. Um, my thought is that what changed and so i started reading the blog hyperlipid um i gained weight i was working i wasn't i was working a lot uh running a farm in a butcher shop and i wasn't you know paying very close attention to my diet because i was overwhelmed and was eating restaurant food and whatever so i gained weight um and I wanted to turn it around. So I went back and started reading Hyperlipid again. Um, I also have a genetic, uh, molecular biology degree, really, from Cornell. So I, I understand a lot of the science of it. And so I was reading his blog, and, and his blog is really dense, and there's a lot of uh, vocabulary that you have to learn to, to really get into it. And so, anyway, I, I kind of he talks a lot about the effects of saturated fats in the mitochondria how they generate reactive oxygen species and reactive oxygen species um, have a number of effects, including limiting insulin signaling. So the idea is that insulin um, causes you to store energy, to store fat. And and so if you're eating a diet that's very high in saturated fat, specifically uh, your fat cells actually become, a little bit insulin resistant, and this is a reversible short-term insulin resistance that he calls physiological insulin resistance, and that that actually will limit the amount of fat that the fat cells will take up. Um, and in the same time, I found there's some interesting papers um, in both rodents and in humans showing that stearic acid specifically has this metabolic effect. Um, the the, the, the paper that everybody loves. I call it the banana milkshake paper, but they took people, they put them on a, on a low fat vegan diet for two days. And then they took a blood sample and stained their white blood cells and showed that the, their mitochondria were actually, um, uh, fragmented. They were very small. And then they gave them this milkshake, which has, I uh, somewhere around 25 grams of stearic acid in it. And within like six hours, um, again, they drew blood and showed with staining that their mitochondria grow into this like fused network of mitochondria. They actually all the mitochondria themselves fuse and grow into these chains. And in that state, they're doing a lot more um, uh, fat oxidation. And so, anyway, there's a study that um, was done by a grad student, and and she was feeding uh, starch and stearic acid to mice, and those mice got really thin. And so, you know, given my given my background in in French colors, I said, well, you know, saturated fat and starch together, that that's like a French recipe. That's like a croissant or something, right? And so that's when that was sort of the Eureka moment that I had thinking about the French diet and these mice eating flour and stearic acid and the difference between that diet and what Americans eat, which is You know, flour or starch with vegetable oil, and thinking about mitochondrial dynamics and you know insulin and all these things. I was like, this—it all kind of just like came together, right? Um, And that's when I decided to try making these these very high stearic acid croissants, um, which led me to,
0: which is absolutely brilliant, by the way. I don't know if you know that, but it is. And just just to backtrack one second for people that just in case this is the first time they're hearing from you or hearing more about kind of the science back stuff, I, I love all this stuff. But basically, the, the the basic way for a layperson to understand mitochondria is is the cellular powerhouse. It's what generates energy. Would that be fair?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And and so what what happens in the mitochondria is, um, you know, that's where we're literally oxidizing. The fuels that we eat right which might be starch or might be fat and and there's a um, there's a system within the mitochondria that they can switch back and forth from burning either carbohydrates or fats and they can do that pretty quickly um and so you know one of the things i say about the stearic acid is it turns on fat burning mode and that's like why you know in response to the stearic acid that's why the mitochondria fuse and they actually switch over to the part of the cycle where they're burning fat as opposed to carbohydrate. Um, so even though I'm combining some starch into the croissants, they're actually, you know, uh, they're probably only by the time I I was actually eating like croissant sandwiches. So I was adding like ham and cheese to the croissant, which was already very high in fat. So it's probably only 20% carbohydrate in the meal, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: even though it's a croissant sandwich, which, so it's It's really a low carb meal, which probably is counterintuitive to lots of people when they think about croissants, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you
0: actually ever seen how they're made, you might understand that more because if they're made really well, they have, they do have a very high fat content and a lot of air. So a croissant that looks rather large is actually, I don't know, it's probably what, 50% air or something like that if you you do it really well. So, um. Anyway, so that's a side note, but so you had been working really hard and luckily you have this background in both food and science and you're, so you were working really hard, were stressed, you'd noticed you were putting on a little weight and then you have this Eureka moment with the croissant diet. So before we got on this more formal conversation, you were saying that you had done um, sort of some experiments on your additional experiments maybe on yourself from when you first discovered this. So I'd love to hear more about what you discovered and and, what you're thinking with this uh, iteration of your new diet.
1: Sure, so um, I published in the fall, um, the fall of 2020, uh, a a series of articles called the SCD1 theory of obesity. And one of the things that I discovered while researching stearic acid, et cetera, was that um, there's a gene called SCD1, um, which stands for oil. Coens, I may uh, desaturase doesn't matter, but <laughs> it, it um, the only it, its only job is to take stearic acid, which is a saturated fat, and it um, removes a couple hydrogens from it, and it introduces a double bond, and and when that happens, it becomes oleic acid, which is the the uh, dominant uh, component of olive oil. Hmm. So the only thing this enzyme does is it takes stearic acid, which is found naturally in sources like chocolate um, or cocoa butter. It's found in beef suet, which is beef kidney. It's found in, in all foods to some extent, but the things that are really high in it are beef suet, and chocolate, and, uh, or cocoa butter, and a couple other things. Um, and so the only function of this enzyme is literally to just convert stearic acid to oleic acid, which is in olive oil, um, avocados, and foods like that, and so it doesn't—it doesn't sound like a very dramatic effect, but in fact, it turns out um, there was a lab that did a really interesting set of experiments in the really between around two thousand and two and two thousand and twelve, um, showing that this enzyme is really this kind of master metabolic regulator. And by introducing that double bond uh, it, it, it has all of these metabolic effects. It basically causes the, anything that you produce a lot of this enzyme in. And when I say anything, it could be like a, heart, a human heart cell or it could be like a C. elegans worm, this tiny worm or um, anything. If you make too much of this SCD1, they will store a bunch of fat. And if you, if you prevent them from making SCD-1, they will lose fat. Mm-hmm. So SCD-1 is this kind of like master, and they, they have these mice that were, um, they didn't have uh, leptin receptor. So these mice become very obese. Leptin is a hormone made by our fat cells, and it, it controls a couple of different things. It controls um, satiety in our hypothalamus, but it also uh turns out that it regulates the expression of SCD1. Hmm. And so if you have mice that don't have leptin in them, they get very fat. Um, but <laughs> if they also don't have the SCD1 gene, they become lean again. So you can actually override the effects of leptin. So leptin turns off SCD1 um, in natural systems. And so... You know, a lot of people now are leptin deficient or no, they're not. We have lots of leptin. Sorry, we're, we're leptin resistant. So we're not responding to leptin in the ways that we should. And so, but if you get rid of the SCD1, you start, you know, you start behaving as if you are, you have leptin and it's working effectively and your, your metabolic rate goes up. And so, um, so I start. so I did a blood test to see. You can you can actually test in a in an indirect way how much SCD1 you're making by by a blood test that compares the ratio of your stearic acid to your oleic acid in your blood cell membranes. Because if you're making a lot of the enzyme, then your stearic acid is getting converted to oleic acid, right? And so and so if you have a lot of oleic acid and a and very little stearic acid, you probably make a lot of this SCD1. So I did the blood test, and sure enough, um, even though I had been I've been avoiding uh, vegetable oils and I've been avoiding polyunsaturated fats, and those levels were low. And I'd been eating a lot of stearic acid. Um, my body wasn't holding on to the stearic acid; it was converting it all to oleic acid. And you know, I've struggled with obesity my whole life, which is why I've been doing keto on and off, you know, since for twenty years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when I realized this, you know, I have this metabolic problem that my body is overproducing this SCD1 and what leptin is supposed to do is it's supposed to, um, it is supposed to lead to a process called thermogenesis, which just means making heat. Mm -hmm. So your the way that your body controls is supposed to control the level of obesity is when you get fat. Your fat cells make leptin, so your leptin levels go up.
0: If you've been around my content for a while, you know that I love making and eating gourmet food and pairing it with wine. You may think you can't enjoy wine while trying to lose weight or stay in ketosis. And if you're drinking traditional wine, you're probably right. So many wines are mass produced and full of sugar and other additives that can wreak havoc on your health goals and make you feel just bad. Fortunately, I discovered Dry Farm Wines. I've been drinking their wine for years now, and I love this company. They individually test small batch wines produced by vintners committed to the practice of dry farm production. Some of my favorites have been the Blas Franck-ish variety from Austria and all of the wines from the Loire Valley in France. Dry farm wines are free from excess sulfites and mold that can cause adverse reactions and hangovers. With no added sugar, each wine is tested to be under one gram of sugar in the entire bottle. Yes, you heard me right. Less than one carb in the whole bottle of wine. They're also slightly lower alcohol, which means you can enjoy a delicious wine pairing at dinner any given night and not end up with a hangover. You can receive an extra bottle for just a penny with your first order by visiting dryfarmwines.com slash grow I'd love to hear what your favorite wine is after you try
1: it. The leptin um, increases the amount of fat being shuttled into your mitochondria and it downregulates SCD1, which is to say that the fat going into the mitochondria is more saturated and more of it is entering quicker. And when that happens the effect is you make a whole bunch of these reactive oxygen species um, which are free radicals which is like a scary word <laughs> but it's okay this is we have systems to deal with it this is normal human physiology in response to that happening the mitochondria makes something called uncoupling protein and i don't want to get too far in the weeds on this but the ultimate action of uncoupling protein is that your calories are simply burned off as heat um, rather than being stored. Um, and that's what's supposed to happen, right? If you're if you're if you have a lot of leptin, that's the signal to your body that you're getting very fat. And so the leptin says, okay, well saturate the fat, send it into the mitochondria. That's going to allow us to uncouple and do thermogenesis and safely burn off the calories. Right. Um, That's how it's supposed to work. So my argument is that, okay, so what happened between 1960 and now? Well, it turns out that if you have too many of the polyunsaturated fats, um, they don't generate the same amount of reactive oxygen species. They limit you from doing thermogenesis. um, Your body temperature drops and you're unable to to burn off the calories in response to leptin. Um, well, I'm I so glad just you wrote... gave the real uh,
0: the real explanation there because the way I've been explaining, because I've been talking about this quite a bit on social media after hearing you and Paul talk about it and Peter and a couple of other people, and uh, I kind of describe it as you know if you the polyunsaturates they muck up your system and don't allow you to easily reduce or release fat. Is that <laughs> accurate in the layperson's kind of wording?
1: Yes. I would say, you know, in my situation, you know, my, my understanding has evolved even since I went um, and talked with Paul Saladino. But so what I'm seeing that, so I just wrote an article, which I think is really interesting. It's called, this is your body temperature on vegetable oil. And there was an article that came out just last year. Um, so there's a well-documented tribe in, um, in uh in the Amazon. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Bolivia. And, they were basically eating. They were eating a lot of starch. Um, starch is interesting because if you if your if your metabolism is in good shape and you're not producing a lot of SCD one, and you're eating almost all starch, your your stored body fat is very saturated. And so, uh, this tribe in the Bolivia was eating plantain and. Um, uh, there's another something. root vegetable that's eaten a lot in the tropics. It's name isn't coming Taro? to me, yeah, anyway, I think something so. like that. <laughs> yeah. And so anyway, they were living on that. They had a normal body temperature of 98.6 in 2002 to 2004, you know, as documented by, a uh, you know, a, a new medical station that was built there. Right. So they, they took everybody's body temperature. It was 90.6. Great. Well, by, um, to, you know, recently, within the last five years, everyone's body temperature in that tribe dropped to like 97.7. So they lost an entire degree of body temperature in the last 20 years, and nobody really knows why. And the only thing that changed on the island was, or not on the island, um, was they built a store so that they could buy food Mm -hmm. from, they could buy industrial food, basically. Mm -hmm. Which is to say, food that contains vegetable oil. And so I think that um, I put another study on there in mice showing that mice eating starch uh, have a high body temperature, even when challenged with, with cold uh, you know, external temperature, but mice eating starch and margarine, uh, vegetable oil, they cannot keep their body temperature high when it gets cold, Uh, they get cold very quickly. They're unable to do this thermogenesis um, and this mitochondrial uncoupling. And so, you know, basically what I'm arguing, if we distill it down, is that to make, um, you know, in most Americans, industrial body temperatures have also dropped by about the same amount. Like the tribe in, in Bolivia now has the same body temperature as the average citizen of uh, Great Britain, according to to another article that came out in the last year. So so body temperatures have dropped around the world. We know that. I think it's because of the polyunsaturated fats don't allow us to drive the ROS, which doesn't allow us to do thermogenesis, which is to say just simply burning off our calories. Interesting.
0: just as an, to use myself as an example, and I wonder how long this would take. So I've been low carb for five years, keto for four, and I, and I'm, I do pretty clean. I don't do any intentional poofas. I, I do go out to eat on occasion, though, so I know almost sure. with unidentifiable fact that I have gotten some in, at some point. But for the most part, I'm and I've certainly added beef tallow into my diet for the stearic acid most recently. Um, but I have observed that my body temperature, especially since now everybody takes your temperature everywhere you go, right? <laughs> right. Um, but my body temperature is always quite low, like maybe even 96 point something. Um, yeah. and you know, part of that might be my age getting a little older and all that, but I'm just curious because but of your I, new I mean, revelation. I think, the,
1: I think the forehead reading is probably a little bit lower than if you did it with a Yeah. You know, an actual under-the-tongue thermometer.
0: Well, even under-the-tongue, though, mine does tend to be low, so I'm just curious, yeah. like...
1: As, no, mine always I'm... was my whole, my whole adult life. My blood, blood temperature was low. And so, so here's... I'll, I'll finish my story and my experiment. And so I became super rabid about avoiding all polyunsaturated fat in the uh, January of 2019, I guess it would have been. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've now been really avoiding them for about two years. Um, and I've done, I have this blood test that I suggest on my blog. There's a link to it from my article, The SCD Theory of Obesity, Part 2, I believe. Um, there's other people's results on there, but it's a met in a mega quant test. And so I've showed that my, at least in my red blood cells membranes, uh, the level of polyunsaturated that I have now is like well below... The range of ninety-nine percent of Americans. Um, so that was that was a cool affirmation of that. But yet, you know, my body temperature was still low, and I could see on that same test, like I say, I was not storing a lot of stearic acid. My body was converting it all the oleic acid, and so I got a hold of some of this um, sterculic oil, which inhibits the SCD one enzyme, the thing that is like unsaturating all of your fat and preventing you from doing the thermogenesis. Mm-hmm. And so I took that over two months and there was a remarkable change in my body fat composition. Like it went from being, you know, the amount of stearic acid that I had almost doubled and the amount of oleic acid went down by, I don't know, 30% or something. Wow! And so true. you can see on the blood test, like, okay, well that enzyme definitely worked. Um, I also over last summer invested in this metabolic tester because I've just become really curious about this issue of like, can we change our underlying metabolic rate? It's not and the I lumen, think that we can. And I, and I think that, that our, everyone's collective drop in body temperature over the last hundred years or so or 150 years shows that most of us are not good at, at, at doing this adaptive thermogenesis, as they call it. And so anyway, so I took that oil for two months and I did notice a couple of things. Within about a week of taking it, I started getting body temperature reading backs that were like 98.6 or 98.4, or at least 98.1, which I'd never even, I was usually like Mm 97.2 in the weeks before I started taking it. So I quickly, you know, my my body temperature became normal. In like a week. So I was like, well, that's cool. Um, and over about two weeks, my metabolic rate increased. So I had been, before I started taking it, I was, I was intentionally not supplementing any stearic acid. I was just kind of doing like what I call a, I was trying to be very regular (laughs) and I was eating like, like, um, toast and eggs with butter in the morning. And for dinner, I was eating like steak and a potato. And I was eating like two or three meals a day. I wasn't doing any fasting. I wasn't doing any stearic acid supplementation. I was just like trying to get a baseline of where my metabolic rate was if I wasn't like going out of my way to, mm-hmm. you know, to change anything, right? And so at that point, my my metabolic rate was like 2,200 calories a day. And that's, um, I always did it about the same time of day, sitting on my couch, same spot, and it measures your heart rate. So same heart rate, like trying to control all the variables. So I was getting consistently around 2,200 calories a day. And then after I started taking the oil within a few weeks, uh, my metabolic rate actually went up to around 25 to 2,600 calories a day and it stayed there. Um, that was pretty consistent. And I was like, that's cool. Like the, you know, by inhibiting this enzyme and saturating my body fat, I definitely changed my basic metabolic rate, right? And and I'm like, that's awesome. Um, but, you know, then the holidays came. Uh, despite the higher metabolic rate, I managed to pack on a few pounds during the holidays while eating with my family. My whole family loves eating, so we ate a lot. <laughs> and so then, anyways... <laughs> Hol- the holidays go by. Okay. So it's January 2nd or 3rd or whatever. Um, I went back to my, what I call my stearic acid macro dosing diet, which is like, basically I'm trying to get all my calories. I'm, I'm trying to do, get all my calories in, in one single big meal. And it's a very high stearic acid based meal to try to, you know, st- Because I knew that I had kind of fixed my body fats, and now it was like, okay, now let's see what happens if I add to this the the dietary stearic acid, which I think has its own separate effects from your stored body fats and i think they're probably synergistic right
0: like what you hear so far make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now we'd also love it if you could post a review on itunes it helps us so much by allowing others to more easily find us the heal nourish grow podcast wouldn't be possible without listeners like you thank you so much for your support now back to the show
1: i do this big feast meal um And on on my blog, if you look for the article stearic acid macrodosing, you can see the kind of meal that I'm talking about. Um, I do this big feast meal, and then the next morning, my metabolic rate was at like 2,800 degrees. And I was like, cool, that's the highest I've ever measured, right? And then between the feast days, I do a fast day. That's the whole gambit of this. It's like a weight loss diet, and it's like you're feasting every other day to keep your metabolic rate high, and then you fast to like lose weight right? in between. Mm And so on the fasting day, my metabolic rate went up to like 2,900 degrees. And then on the third, and then that evening, I might have a day slightly on, I had the big feast meal again. Um, and the morning after the second big feast meal, my metabolic rate hit uh, 3,100 calories a day Wow! just sitting on my couch. So that was a 900 calorie difference. It it, since then it kind of like leveled back out around twenty eight or twenty nine hundred,
0: but still higher than your baseline.
1: So that's like seven or eight hundred calories higher than my baseline, which is five to six thousand calories a week. Mm -hmm. You know that's like two whole days of food. (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm not. It's I didn't. I'm not exercising. I'm not. You know what I mean. I'm not doing anything other than fixing the fats that I'm eating or fixing my stored fat and my dietary fat, right? Those are the two things um, that led to that change.
0: And I think that you mentioned that you now, that oil that you mentioned that inhibits this specific enzyme, you actually sell that now, is that right?
1: I am, yes, and it's been, Quite a process to actually have it imported and labeled and bottled, and I'm sort of way behind schedule, but it's coming very, very soon.
0: Oh, shoot. I was (laughs) gonna say I'm ordering it immediately, but it's not available yet.
1: (laughs) Well, it should be in the next week or two.
0: Okay. Awesome. I'm gonna be one of your first customers.
1: (laughs) So and I and I will and I and I'll put this caveat out there. I want to tell people this. Like, um, so along with taking that oil, I did see uh increased uh inflammatory markers. Oh, interesting. Because you are, you know. You're literally playing with fire. Um, you know, our basic body signaling works off of these reactive oxygen species, and um, most of us, if you're healthy, our body has really good ways of. Well, it's not that we have good ways of dealing with them. They're actually how those reactive oxygen species are how cell signaling works in your cell. So. If the if the mitochondria is making a bunch of reactive oxygen species, that's a signal to the nucleus, like, okay, something's happening. We're burning fat now, and and the uh, the nucleus um, makes proteins that you know deals with that reality. And if the nucleus doesn't see a lot of reaction reactive oxygen species being produced, it thinks, okay, we're burning blood glucose now, and it produces proteins to deal with that situation. Right. So either, so it's, it's not bad to make reactive oxygen species, but in my case in particular, since I've already eliminated all of the, well not all, but a substantial amount of the polyunsaturated fat that I did have. So my fat is already pretty unsaturated and um since I'm overweight, since I have extra fat, that means my body's making a lot of leptin and leptin is also something that's shuttling um, fat into the mitochondria, right? It's adding fuel to the fire. And then also I block the enzyme. So now all of the fat that's being rapidly shuttled, shuttled into the mitochondria because I have all this leptin and because I'm eating these big stearic acid feast meals, it's like, the maximum, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I'm, my whole goal is maximum generation of these reactive oxygen species because that ultimately is what causes your mitochondria to uncouple and um, that uncoupling is what increases your metabolic rate. So once that happens, once the mitochondria uncouple, then you have you're going to generate a lot less reactive oxygen species after that. So the whole reason that your mitochondria are uncoupling in the first place is to get rid of the reactive oxygen species because what happens is once they uncouple the it's like it's kind of like depressurizing a balloon. It's like you're trying to pump up a balloon, you're trying to like blow air into a balloon and the balloon's really tight and it's hard to blow air into it and mm-hmm. it's uncoupling the mitochondria is like Putting a couple little prick holes in the balloon, and all of a sudden you can keep blowing air into it because, you know, mm-hmm. the air's just blowing out the other side. It's fine. It's like eliminating the pressure um, when your mitochondria uncouple. So, so, the end result so you have to build up the reactive oxygen species in the first place so that um, this uncoupling event happens, which is the thing that increases your metabolic rate. But then the reactive oxygen species go back down, if that makes sense. That's a lot of technical stuff.
0: No, So that's where the inflammation is coming from is when you're in that process of building the reactive oxygen species before the uncoupling happens.
1: Exactly. So
0: you're thinking though that that's just a temporary rise due to this metabolic process.
1: Exactly. So my thinking is that you have to kind of make this flip and in the early stages of building up this flip, you're going to have some inflammation. But then, you know, hopefully, once you get over the hump, um, you, you know, you've, you've basically solved the first problem. And the way that you've solved it is actually by increasing your metabolic rate. It's like the increase in the metabolic rate is the thing that cures the inflammation in the first place.
0: Yeah. If that makes sense. No, that's pretty awesome. Actually, I wonder. And this might not really be related, but, you know, Dr. Fung has this idea that he talks about how, you know, every once in a while you'll be in a long fast and you'll take your blood glucose and it's like high. And and he's, he's kind of explained it before that your body has over the years stored some of these toxins and, and, you know, sugar within the fat cells. And so once you start this process of releasing things from the fat cells, which sounds very similar to what you're talking about, that you sometimes get these you know, just like weird things being released from your fat cell. So I'm wondering if, based on what you just said, if some of this process of uncoupling within the cells releases, you know, maybe the polyunsaturates, even though you're mostly unsaturated now, but maybe it's releasing some of those, like the body's going around finding those and trying to get rid of a few more. And maybe that creates some more inflammation or something.
1: Yeah, I mean, it could be. Um, (laughs) There's another really interesting paper that I... I just posted about on my blog, which I love because I think it's hilarious, but it probably makes some people a little uneasy. <laughs> so Your blog was, or
0: the research?
1: <laughs> the article, uh, this, this, this specific piece of research um, was about a strain of mice and they, so there's, a, there's something called NRF2, and I'm not gonna get that deep into it, but it's, it's a primary regulator that prevents uh, oxidative stress. And so in the mice, they removed their NRF2 gene so that they were no longer able to deal with oxidative stress. Um, So these mice absolutely are in an extended stage of oxidative stress. And so what do they do? They uncouple their mitochondria, their metabolic rate goes up, and they are protected from obesity. Because they have oxidative stress. Hmm. So, you know, I, I actually think that in a lot of ways, many of us are in a state of reductive stress, which is the opposite of oxidative stress. And I think reductive stress is the inability to create the biologically appropriate level of reactive oxygen species for. purposes of biological signaling and responding to, you know, the fact that we're burning fat versus glucose. And so I, and I think there's, you know, oxidative stress is a wide ranging concept. And I'm talking specifically about within certain intercellular components, um, you know, just right around the mitochondria and signaling back and forth in the nucleus. That's where you want it. If you have it in your like, other parts of the body it it can be a less good thing Um, and I think that if you reduce your when you have oxidative stress the first thing that gets oxidized it leads to like real bad things happening downstream is polyunsaturated fats polyunsaturated fats are very highly prone to oxidation and so if you have a lot of them and then you have oxidative stress they make these uh, like uh, peroxides, these lipid peroxides, and those those definitely lead to a lot of damage. And so, you know, I think about this all together. I'm like, well, I don't want the bad kind of oxidative stress. I want to eliminate vegetable oils, but I do want to generate free radicals, um, which is to say reactive oxygen species, in order to do what I consider to be appropriate biological signaling. So it's, it's it's like a it's a balancing act, you know. You you need to generate some um, for your metabolism to function efficiently, but you also want to uh, protect from real oxidative damage by avoiding polyunsaturated fats. That's kind of that's kind of where I fall down on it. So so I'm okay with generating the free radicals because I've been very careful about not filling myself up with vegetable oil.
0: You know how I often talk about just being 1% better every day? Well, ButcherBox believes in better. For them, better means caring about animals and the planet, treating the planet with respect, and it means improving the lives of animals and the livelihoods of farmers. Their beef is grass-fed and grass-finished, chicken is free-range and organic, turkey is free-range, pork is humanely raised, and salmon and scallops are wild-caught. I've been using ButcherBox for a couple years now, and it was a godsend having such high-quality meat delivered to my door during the pandemic. If you're interested in saving money and eating healthier, this is the perfect service for you. For just one day this month, which is January the 21st, 2022, you'll get free Wings for Life with your new subscription. Just visit ButcherBox slash grow and that's a very special URL. It's dot c o slash heal, nourish, grow to take advantage of this special offer. Or if you'd rather have ground beef free for life, wait until the 22nd to place your order. Again, that's dot c o slash heal, nourish, grow. If you have any confusion about the URL or how to get this offer, just check the show notes. Right. No, that makes sense. So before we go and and I would say the biggest takeaway from that if people don't get into to the geeky science like we do is don't eat it saturated polyunsaturated fats the end. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Polyunsaturated bad, yeah. stearic acid good. <laughs> so um, exactly. Yeah, we're in it, it is interesting though to try to I mean you've had to go through all these iterations and experiments before you kind of brought this all together in a way that you know people that are in just nutrition science or just Um, oxidative stress science or whatever they're not thinking of it from sort of a whole body perspective and how it affects your weight your energy the ability of your mitochondria to couple or uncouple i I think that you know this is kind of a a unique area of interest that you've developed here (laughs) (laughs) And probably the only one with the background to really, uh, understand it. But before we, uh, I have two more things I want to cover and I want to be respectful of your time. Of course, the sure. first one has to do with your farm. We haven't even talked about your farm yet and you're doing some really cool things with your, um, particularly your pork with their diet based on this research that you learned. And I think it was basically that you were just finding that because of what they were eating when they were eating a lot of corn or, or polyunsaturated fats, they're, fat was ending up having that in it and then we in turn we think we're eating something healthy we're having some pork instead of our nightly steak on our keto diet and meanwhile we're getting polyunsaturated fats by eating pork which is kind of crazy to me so can you talk a little bit about how you've changed things in your farm to kind of address that problem
1: right and so i I want to clarify i'm not the i have a company called firebrand meats and we are selling uh low poof of pork Uh, i've actually at this point i'm uh, I've outsourced that to a farmer oh. friend of mine. They're not actually grown on my farm, but this guy is a great pig. He's actually honestly a much better pig farmer than I am. He's like a 5th <laughs> generation pig farmer. Um, he's great. And he's, 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 um, he thinks a lot like I do in a lot of ways. So he's really clever about, uh, helping me design the right kind of feeds that I want. Cause he has his own feed mill and it's a great operator. And so, But for a long time, I did run a farm and I ran a butcher shop. And so that gave me the advantage that, um, I was seeing, I was seeing the both ends. I was seeing what the animals were being fed. And then I was seeing how the meat came out in the butcher shop. And I knew that traditionally in, um, in Europe and in like Northern Canada, they had, they were known as having the best firmest pork and like, In the 1800s, American pork sold at a discount in European markets. People didn't want the American pork because the fat was soft. And the reason the fat was soft is that the American pigs were being fed corn. And corn is about 5-ish percent um, corn oil. And the European and the Canadian pigs were being fed barley and peas. And and barley and peas are only about 2% oil. And so that doesn't sound like a huge difference. It's only 3%, but what happens is the pigs sort of bioaccumulate because they're eating, you know, because they're eating corn all day, every day. Um, That little difference in the amount of dietary fat, you know, builds up in their fat. Um, And so, you know, American pork traditionally was maybe 10% polyunsaturated fat and the, the European pork might've been half that. Um, in recent decades, what we've done is we've switched to leaner breeds of hogs. Um, the other white meat, if anyone remembers that from the nineties and, and we also have started doing, um, we make a lot of our corn crop into ethanol now, 30 or 40% of the American corn crop gets made into ethanol. And so the, when they make corn into ethanol, all the starch is removed to make the ethanol and that leaves behind the fat and the fiber and the protein and so they take those things called dried distillers grains and they feed those to the pigs and that actually concentrates the fat even more so you know i've seen pigs i've seen studies with pigs having 25 percent of their fat as polyunsaturated fat and that's um that's way more linoleic acid which is the primary poly that's the omega-6 polyunsaturated fat that people hear about Um, I've seen that as high as yeah, 23, 25%, which is more than canola oil. Canola oil is around 14 to 15%. And I think most American pork now has around 15%. I think from the the numbers I've seen that people have tested it and sent it to me, I think American pork is around 15% uh, polyunsaturated fat, which is to say the same as canola oil. And so I'm, and anyways, what I noticed on the farm was, you know, the less oil that I fed the pigs, and the better the genetics that I used, um, the firmer the fat was. And so then, once I, I finally did get a sample tested one time, uh, and these were these were like finished on on basically on whole wheat, honestly, and pasture. Um, wheat is low in fat, like barley is, and and those pigs only had about six percent linoleic acid. And so that's kind of my goal is to make uh, fat in that 6% or less. Um, I know we can do it the first and it, and it you know, it takes a minute. We've got a new program off the ground. The, the first batch I'm pretty happy with, but I know we can do better. Um, so we're, we're tinkering with the genetics and we're trying some different things to really get that. Um, we're actually using one of our main feeds that we're using is pea flour. Which is, which is actually made in the Midwest. This is where my friend comes in. He's he's knows how to get contracts on things like this. Um, pea, so pea flour is is kind of like the traditional Canadian barley and pea-fed pigs, except that they, the reason that there's pea flour is they're um. They're removing the pea protein to make things like the Impossible Burger. <laughs> right. And then, so they're separating out the protein and the fat and basically the starchy part of it. And so we're now able to buy just the pure starchy part of the peas um, that's left over from making the Impossible Burger. And that's what we're feeding back to the, um, to the Firebrand Meats pigs. And that basically doesn't have any fat in it. So we're able to make pigs that are, that are given a diet that's very, very low in fat, even lower than I was able to do on my farm here. So. Um, so that's the whole backstory on all of that crazy stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you actually, i i visited your website the other day and I was getting ready to go out of town. So I didn't want to order yet, but uh, I think you have two, like you can do a March and a May or something like that right now. Yeah, those,
1: so there's probably the next boxes are going to ship, uh, probably late March. Um, and then the next batch after that is a little bit to be determined. I'm hoping for May, it may slip into June. And then once... You know, by the end of summer, I want to have it so that um, we have stock regularly, and and you know, you can just sign up and it'll ship at a like people can subscribe and get one a month, or just you know buy one and it'll ship to them. But but for now, it's still this. It's very batch. They're just batches. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, I got it, and I can't wait to try that. By the way, because I've been avoiding pork for the most part after learning about most of this stuff. Which, by the way, I mean obviously we want people to be more into you know, supporting local farmers and, and, you know, doing practices that are more like regenerative, right? That's, that word is always hard to say, <laughs> regenerative farming and that sort go. of thing. But if they can't find that in their area or they just, you know, can't afford it, can you, I mean, a lot of pork say like a pork chop is generally pretty lean. Is the fat still held within the muscle as well? Or if they go for a very lean piece of pork, is that a little bit better?
1: Right. Yeah. So you can, if you get a, you know, like a, like a, like a boneless pork loin um, and trim the fat off of it, you know, that's a, that's a really low cut, low fat cut of meat. So Mm -hmm. you're not, you're not getting a lot of fat from the pork and that's, that's fine, you know? Um, Or if you eat like a, you know, the other thing, chickens on average have more polyunsaturated fat than, than pork does. So if you eat like a, a whole roasted chicken with the skin and everything, you're getting a lot of polyunsaturated fat. But if you eat a boneless, skinless chicken breast, you're you're not. Um right. so yeah, uh so I think eating really lean cuts, you can kind of skirt the issue. But if you what you really want is bacon or a nice roasted chicken, then you know you've gotta right. think a little harder.
0: No, that makes sense. And but so at least people in like maybe part of the thing with their diet, they could do the lean chicken breast and then just you know, cook it in stearic acid, right? (laughs) Well,
1: that's, that's what I do sometimes is I'll, 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 I'll do like a breaded chicken breast and I'll fry it in my, like my stearic acid, butter oil.
0: Nice. Like that idea. So the last thing that I have to ask you about before you go is that you were, you went to the French culinary Institute and you make these croissants that you've been using for your diet, right? Yes. I had a very, uh, ill-fated attempt at croissants before. So I am just curious if you have any plans or maybe you've already done this and I just didn't see it like on your blog or anywhere to number one, share your high steric acid croissant recipe, or do you have like a tutorial that walks us through it?
1: Yeah. So it's funny. Uh, so right now, um, I don't know. Uh, so Dave Feldman, um, if you know Dave Feldman is. love but he's Dave a,
0: Feldman. And just for people that don't know, he is, has a lot of work with cholesterol.
1: Right. And so Dave is a really interesting guy because he does he does all of these experiments on himself and he's an engineer and he is very rigorous about the experiments and he collects tons and tons and tons of data. And so he has all this baseline data on his, like everything, all of his blood numbers he knows it going back years now. Right. And so he's actually going to do, um, a test of the croissant diet. Um, so I just sent him some croissants and he tried them. And so we're going to, so, and and the other good news is that I'm not, I went to culinary Institute. I'm not a baker. (laughs) So my croissants, that I made in the experiment kind of sucked. I mean, they weren't terrible, but they weren't great. <laughs> so
0: it sounds like we both might need to work on that a little bit.
1: <laughs> right. So, but, um, so I've enlisted a good friend of mine who is a baker on this mission. And so she's actually baking the croissants, uh, for Dave. And so, uh, I worked with her. We did test batches. We picked the one we liked. Um, and so I'm going to try to get a video tutorial of her making croissants when we make the actual batch for Dave and hopefully post that, um, so that's that's my that's my hope.
0: Awesome. Well, that addresses the, that addresses the question then, because I I would love to try it again, especially based on what I know now. Because the other thing um, that I did actually buy this in anticipation, not for croissants, but maybe just a loaf of French bread. I know I just said bread on the keto podcast here, but I know. Um, <laughs> but I similar to you, um, have thought about that issue with, you know, Italians and French eating in the way they eat. And yet they are for the most part, still a lot of them are much leaner than we are as Americans. Uh, and the other thing I think it has to do with is the flour. I just think our flour is so, you know, genetically modified, highly processed. It's, it's a really a different product than a lot of the things they get in Europe, because I have been fortunate to travel Europe quite a bit, and I've eaten things over there where I just feel fantastic, um, Yeah, you know, carby things even, and um, and then, you know, you can't really eat the same here, so I thought about doing this experiment with uh, just making a loaf of a baguette of regular American flour bread, test my blood sugar with that, and then test it with, um, I bought some French Flour that's made from you know locally french wheat or whatever and uh, i haven't done that yet but i'll let you know how that turns out
1: (laughs) that'd be really interesting and and i know there's also some like i know there's regions of italy where they have like special flowers that are you know the ones that were grown there from time immemorial um yeah like uh,
0: semolina right and that especially
1: especially the semolina although that's not so good for Baking French bread, probably.
0: No, I don't think so either. Just for pasta, probably. Yeah. Um, but yeah, well, I just want to thank you again, Brad, for taking the time to do this today and to share this with people because I think the stuff that you guys have been talking about, especially in relation to steric acid, is just super interesting. And I I'm, I'm just like on the edge of my seat waiting to see here what the next experiment is and what you guys are figuring out next. And then I try to just distill it down to like a more normal person version and try to pass that along to people. <laughs> not, I'm not saying you're not normal. You're just,
1: it's fine. I'm not, I don't take offense.
0: <laughs> but anyway, again, thank you so much for taking the time and just where can people, what's the easiest way to keep track of you? I know you're a big Twitter person. Sure. I, I am not, um, but where else can they find you?
1: So yeah, so I'm on Twitter. I'm uh, the, just the user is fire underscore bottle. Um, my blog, of course, is fireinabottle.net, and uh, the Firebrand Meats blog or the Firebrand Meats website is firebrandmeats.com. Um, there's also a couple. There's a Reddit subgroup um, that a lot of people use that talks about all of these same topics. called It's a r/saturatedfat. Oh, nice. Um, so that's been pretty popular, and I'm on I'm on Reddit as uh, fire underscore in a bottle, all one word. And I'm on Instagram as fire underscore in a bottle, all one word. And on Facebook, um, it's, um, again, it's fire in a bottle. And uh, there is a croissant, croissant diet results discussion group um, that I should check more often. But <laughs> I've got a lot going on. So they're kind of there. But there's, they're, that's also busy. You know, people are posting over there and talking about it. And, and so that's, that's, that's happening too.
0: Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. And I'll be interested to uh, reading your blog over the next year and see what else you figure out.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. We'll keep in touch. <laughs> All right. Sounds and, uh, good. Maybe we'll do it again.
0: Great. Thank you.
1: All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. This
0: has been the Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast. right for you.